Our Father and our God, we pray that we would see you. We pray that we would see you and your majesty, your holiness. We pray that we would see your Son, the one who made the sacrifice that made it possible for us to, to see you, to live our lives before you, to find pleasure in you and to worship you. Father, we pray that you might aid us as we worship you in this portion of the service. We have seen you in Christmas carols, in creed, in prayers. Help us to see you in the word. Be with me as I speak. I pray that you would keep my lips from speaking untruth. Your word is truth. It's what saves. It's what makes people clean, sanctified. Father, I pray that only truth would be communicated today. Be with worshipers. Keep them, Father, from being distracted. Help them to focus on the God that Isaiah sees in the text that we look at this morning. We pray, Father, that if there are those here who don't know Jesus yet, that in seeing God who is righteous, who is righteous judge, the one whom they will meet one day, that they would be drawn to the Christ who allows them to meet him boldly, knowing that they meet him not as one who's going to sentence them to the punishment that their sins justly deserve, but one who has forgiven every last sin in his Son, the God-man sacrifice, the Holy One. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings of the southern kingdom. Uh, he was an amazing king. To find a king who was as successful as he was, you have to go back in Israel's history to David or Solomon. Uzziah's reign was long. He reigned for 52 years. During his tenure, the nation experienced tremendous peace and security. The economy that he oversaw produced unprecedented prosperity. But the king and his people, as humans often do, forgot the source of their blessing, and both king and people grew indifferent and rebellious toward the provider of every good gift. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah record God's indictment of his people for their sins. As King Uzziah became more and more successful, his, eager, his ego grew larger and larger. He began to think that he was above God's laws. We are told in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, that Uzziah entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. As he went to do this, the temple priest warned the king that only those who were chosen by God to be priests were permitted to do this, he got indignant and he threw a fit. Second Chronicles 26, 19 records that while he was raging in his fit of anger at the priest, in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. The great king left the temple in a rush and was forced to live out the rest of his life in quarantine and his son governed, governed in his stead. Up until the 1940s and the development of suitable antibiotics, 
To have leprosy was to mean that you had a terminal disease. It was incurable. You were going to die from it. God is a righteous and just judge. He applies to every sin the punishment that that violation of his law warrants. His judgment, however, is seldom as immediate as Uzziah's was. The reason for that is found both in the nature of God and in the way he approaches us. The scriptures tell us that God, by his very nature, is long-suffering. Numbers 14, 18 records, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. St. Peter, writing about the judgment of God in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, explains why the Lord typically doesn't punish us for our sin at the moment of our sin. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, his promise to punish sin, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's usual approach to us when we sin is to give us time, time to evaluate our sinful acts, time for our conscience and the Holy Spirit if we're Christians to convict us of our sin, for us to come to repentance. But regardless of what a misunderstanding of God's long-suffering nature might lead us to believe, God punishes sin. The writer of Hebrews communicating God's self-description in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, records this. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. And that is worship there. That same word is translated many other places in the New Testament as worship, the word service. With reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, fire in the Bible, when connected with God, is generally descriptive of God's awe-inspiring presence, His holiness, and His judgment. But the writer of Hebrews here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 4, 23, and there God's judgment is in view. We know that the writer of Hebrews desires for us to think of God in his passage as the God who is judge. He relates that just as a fire destroys all combustible material before it, so God destroys sin and sinners in the white heat of his judgment of his holiness. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to view their God as judge, and they want them to view this judge with utmost reverence and deepest respect and greatest awe. Now, the writer of Hebrews is addressing Christians in 12, 28, and 29. He writes, our God, the believer's God, is a consuming fire. Now, how is it that he can say that? Isn't our God a father? Hasn't Jesus told us to address God as father? Isn't that the case? Well, God is the Christian's father. But as the English Bible commentator A.W. Pink, who lived in the middle of the last century, has written, though God has taken his redeemed into intimate nearness to himself, 
He requires that they always retain a due apprehension of the majesty of his person, the holiness of his nature, the severity of his justice, and the ardent jealousy of his worship. King Uzziah forgot that God judges sin. He forgot that God has revealed how he is to be worshiped. And as a result, he experienced the judgment of the God who is a father, but who is in heaven and whose name is holy. Isaiah 57, 15, I think, records for us the view that we should have toward our God. It is a view that joins closeness conveyed by the phrase, our God, and reverential fear conveyed by a consuming fire. This is what Isaiah writes in that passage, 57, 15. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, and holy means separate from everything else in the universe. It's about transcendency. This God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him or her who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you view God as both high and lofty, but also with you? Is he a father to you, but a father who is in heaven? Or have you become a child who has very little respect for his or her heavenly father? I grew up in a suburban neighborhood, a new neighborhood about 50 miles from here in South Jersey. Down the street from me lived a boy about my age who from the time he was little, now we moved there, I was seven, from the time he was little, he called his parents Russ and Doris. As a preteen, when he would become upset with them, he would curse them to their face, and they allowed this. I was shocked by the total lack of respect that Mark had for his parents. He treated them like peers, not like parents. The relationship was not what God intended for a parent-child relationship to be. Mark felt so familiar with his parents that this familiarity was unnatural, inappropriate, and unseemly. There was no healthy fear of them for him. And familiarity and lack of fear governed his behavior. It is easy for us to drift in this direction with our regard to our view and treatment of God. Now, I'm not saying we would go all the way, but it's easy for us to move in that direction and to lose the balance that Scripture calls us to have. One of the ways we can keep from doing that is regularly pray the Lord's Prayer. When I pray that, I am reminded that God is a Father, that He is a perfect Father, but I also am reminded that He is in heaven. I am reminded that He transcends the creation, and Jim Brown does not. Now, Isaiah tells his readers in 6.1 that King Uzziah has died. He has died from the disease that came as the just deserts of his sin, viewing God as a peer and a violating God's law. With the death of Uzziah, Judah's era of security and peace and prosperity 
crumbles. The God who punished the nation's king for his sin is going to punish the nation's people for their sin if they don't repent. The Assyrians are growing more powerful all the time. The people of Judah are living with uncertainty and fear. Now, when my security is shaken, when yours is shaken, often our thoughts turn to God. We're more tender to Him. We listen to Him speak to us. But for God to be heard, there needs to be one who speaks for Him. And the text that Pastor Kevin read a little while ago, that text tells of the call and the preparation of the prophet who will be God's mouthpiece in Judah. Uzziah died the humbling and debilitating death of a helpless leper king. But as part of his call, God's prophet Isaiah is given a vision of a sovereign who makes King Uzziah at the height of his health and power to look like a helpless infant. Isaiah writes in the text you have before you, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Now let's look at what Isaiah actually saw. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God lives in inapproachable light, unapproachable light, that no one has seen or can see him. Now let me ask you a question. Does 1 Timothy 6.16 contradict what we just read in Isaiah 6.1? Well, obviously it does not. No mortal can fully perceive an invisible, infinite God who is spirit. But God has at times shown himself to humans, as John Calvin writes, in such a form as enabled them, according to their capacity, to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. Now, let me illustrate that. Pat and I, in October, were in bear country in Montana. You know, signs all around. Beware of the bear, don't feed the bear. Uh, all over the place. If we had been out of our Jeep and walking on a trail, and we heard a bear roar, even if we didn't see the bear, its roar would have been enough to let us know that we were in the presence of an awesome being. God gave Isaiah a vision of himself in a form that enabled the prophet to perceive as much as he could of the inconceivable awesomeness of the triune God. The prophet saw a manifestation of the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, seated on a throne befitting his grandeur, his power, his majesty, and his glory. In 6.5 he said, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Notice in your Bible there that Lord is in all caps. It's Yahweh, the name that's attached to God here. Jehovah, the most majestic and the highest of his names. Isaiah saw the exalted potentate of heaven and earth, before whom everything in creation bows in homage. The skirt of the train of this monarch, monarch's robe filled the temple. I believe that 
our prophet is awake. This is a vision, not a dream. And he's given insight into the invisible world of heaven, the throne room of God. Now, mention of the extent of this king's robe or the train of his robe is not made so that we will think of countless yards of material. What we are to see here is the king who fills all of heaven. In an earthly throne room, typically there are all kinds of functionaries around the throne seated and standing. What we are to see here is the awesome presence who fills all of heaven. This king is so great that his glory fills the entire throne room. Isaiah recounts in 6.2 that above this exalted king were seraphs. He doesn't tell us how many. We don't know if there are tens or there are hundreds or there are thousands of them. Seraphs are an order of angels. Angels are created spirit creatures of which there are various kinds mentioned in Scripture. Scripture talks about angels, archangels, powers, principalities, cherubim, and seraphim. And if we could see through the curtain that divides the natural and the supernatural, we would be able to see great hosts of holy angelic creatures who serve God and God's children day and night. Now, the root Hebrew word for seraph means to burn. These creatures are the burning ones. Fire in Scripture, depending on the context, can refer to judgment or purity or both. The seraphim dwell in the presence of the God who is absolutely pure. They must be pure the burning ones. In Isaiah's vision, each of these creatures had six wings. It says that with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So though these seraphim have never sinned, they still cannot look on the glory of the holy God. Now our feet are what attach us to the earth, the seraphim cover theirs in God's presence, possibly to show that the God they serve is separate from and above his creation. He is the transcendent creator. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, Moses meets this God in the burning bush. And God says, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. When God is present, that ground is separate from everything else. Isaiah not only sees heaven, he hears heaven. He hears the worship of these spirit creatures. The seraphs in 6.3, we are told, were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It seems as though their praise in heaven is antiphonal. They're calling back and forth to one another. They're singing or calling out their praises to God, and they do it continually without ceasing. They unceasingly worship the splendor and perfection of all the attributes of the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the God who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, Colossians chapter 1. 16 to 17. Now their praise, inspired by the essence of the God in whose presence they worship, is so mighty that our text tells us, 
At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the heavenly temple was filled with smoke. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was a pattern of the metaphorical arrangement of heaven. And in his vision, Isaiah is shown the heavenly reality of the earthly temple that he knew. At the earthly temple, on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest entered the most holy place with a censer, and that censer was filled with burning coals from the altar of sacrifice. The scripture tells us he took two handfuls of finely ground incense, and he poured that incense on the coals. And when he did, the holy of holies, that inner sanctum, was filled with smoke. This is the place where God on earth met with his people in a unique way. Since the smoke that filled the earthly temple was produced by burning incense, uh, I'm not telling you this is absolutely true, but it is possible that our prophet not only sees and hears heaven, but maybe he even smells the incense of heaven. I don't know. But God's presence and glory are represented throughout Scripture uh, with smoke. You see it in Exodus 20:18 when the law is given, in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11 at the dedication uh, there. When Isaiah sees the king of heaven and earth, the God who is worshipped by angelic beings who dare not look for even an instant on the glory of this holy God whom they praise endlessly, he is forever changed. After that experience, one of the most uh, uh, common descriptive phrases that he uses for the Lord is the Holy One of Israel. He uses it 26 times, I believe, in the book of Isaiah. And all of the other Old Testament writers together uh, talk of God in, uh, in those terms, but six times. The mighty God Isaiah sees is the God under whose scrutiny each of us lives out our lives each moment of every day. He is the God that we will meet after death. Scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. He is the God before whom all will be judged. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, 25, 28, and 31. He says that this God gives life to all. Moment by moment, our lives are in his hands. In him we live and move and have our being. And he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Isaiah tells us what experiencing this God did for him. We are told in your text that his immediate response was to cry out, Woe! is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah sees this God, and he is devastated. He disintegrates emotionally, and he despairs. That is all contained in the meaning of the word translated in English to the phrase, I am ruined. Isaiah knew he was in the presence of the king of all kings, and he realizes he's not dressed appropriately for an audience with this king, this holy one. When anyone 
seriously contemplates the God who is absolutely holy, he or she is forced to see their sins. He or she sees that they haven't a chance of fellowshipping with this God, experiencing Him in intimacy now and for all eternity, unless there's a radical change in their condition. In the presence of this God, we are conscious of our vile filth and the wickedness that's in ourselves and those around us. If you fix your gaze upon the God whom the prophet saw, the God who reveals himself in Scripture, as opposed to the God of pop culture, you too will cry out, woe to me, I am ruined. Now this presents us with a huge problem, a problem of epic proportions, in that this holy, holy, holy God commands us to be holy because he is holy. The standard for us to fellowship with him and worship him is holiness like his holiness. We read that in 1 Peter. The good news of the gospel is that while God is holy and also just, he is also full of mercy and full of grace. Because he is, he doesn't leave this prophet without a remedy for his sinful, his vile condition. In the Old Testament, a, worship brought, uh, a worshiper brought a sacrificial animal, animal, God said what to bring, brought it to the place where worship took place. He laid his hands on the sacrifice, a knife was plunged into that sacrificial animal, the blood was collected, it was spread on the sides of the altar of sacrifice, the priest took the animal, he slaughtered it and placed it, arranged it on the altar where it was burned. When that happened, the wages of sin, which under God's law required the death of the sinner, were viewed by God as having been paid in the violent death of an innocent substitute. But get this, not paid in the death of the offer's slaughtered animal, but paid in the perfect sacrifice that God would provide in the sinless God-man who would suffer hell and die in the place of sinners. The worshiper who, believing that the sacrifice he brought pictured the sacrifice Christ would make for him, was forgiven and cleansed of every sin. In Isaiah's vision, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, God sent an angel to cleanse the woeful prophet of his sin. Isaiah tells us one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, it wasn't just the prophet's lips that were being cleansed, though he was going to be the one who speaks for God to the nation of Judah. It makes sense that he would need clean lips. But you know, our lips reflect what's in our heart. We're told in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The purging of the prophet's lips with fire from the altar of sacrifice symbolized God's cleansing of the prophet's 
entire person by means of the sacrifice of Jesus. The seraph leaves no doubt about the full extent of the cleansing that took place in the prophet. He assures Isaiah in our text, your sin, all of it, is atoned for. I suggest to you this day that a vision of God is the prelude to real worship, to true biblical worship. When you see the perfect holiness of God, you have to see the hideousness of your sin. When you are devastated by the thought of your sin and your hopeless condition, and you cry out to God, trusting in the provision He has made for your sin in the sacrifice of Christ, you will be made clean, you will be prepared to come before a holy God in worship, a God who is a consuming fire. And you will be taught by His Spirit to know, uh, to perceive more of God's glory, and that knowledge of His glory, when you're focusing upon it, will compel you to worship Him. The cry of the seraphs in Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It's just their natural response to experiencing a small portion of what they are capable of experiencing of the majesty and the glory of God in whose presence they dwell. When we understand and focus upon the glory of God, we respond with similar amazement, awe, wonder, and reverential fear. And like them, we spontaneously praise in worship the God whose glory we have witnessed. It's a pattern throughout Scripture. When you attend a worship service, do you attend realizing that you come with the purpose of entering the presence of this awesome God, a God who is your Father, but who must be worshipped acceptably with reverence and awe because He is a consuming fire? When you come in and take your seat, do you remind yourself that you're, you need to focus upon the transcendent glory of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of focus that moves us to praise Him for all that He is and all the grace that He has graciously provided us in His Son. Preparation for worship, I would suggest, is best practiced by going through what Isaiah went through. We think of the holiness of God. We focus upon the God of heaven. God's holiness, as we see it, causes us to see our condition, and in our hopeless condition, we are directed to the thoughts of God's grace and of cleansing, the cleansing that has been applied to us from the altar of the sacrifice of a cross. New Testament worship has been freed from the rituals of Old Testament worship. Those rituals pointed to the Christ who now has come they're superfluous, superfluous, we don't need those at all. But the God whom they worshiped in the Old Testament has not changed in the new. Old or new, He is awesome and holy and righteous and glorious. And this God is present with us when we worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 
says there's a special way in which God dwells with his people, the church. We're told in Matthew 18, 20 by Jesus that where two or three come together in his name, that he is with them. When we gather in worship, the dynamic is entirely different from when we go to the theater or go to see a movie uh, or other such assemblies. It is a different from when we are in a classroom. I would suggest even a Sunday school classroom. We're there in those situations to receive information. When we come here, we are come, Romans 15, 5, through, uh, 5 and 6, in a spirit of unity so that with one heart and mouth we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. True worship doesn't happen because we sing some hymns, we pray some prayers, say some creeds, listen to someone teach. True worship takes place when the spiritual part of you actually meets with and fellowships with the God who is spirit and praises him for who he is and what he has done. That's the message of John chapter 4, I believe, where Jesus meets the woman at the well and discusses worship. Worship requires focus, concentration, undivided attention directed toward God. It takes effort. It takes effort for me. I have a daughter who has two master's degrees in education, and she believes with all her heart that I'm partially ADD. So you can imagine, I have to work hard to focus. And then each of us on staff has a primary function. Mine is the upkeep and maintenance of the facility. I come to worship, I see bulbs that are burnt out, pews that are scuffed, floors that need buffing, all of that. I have to work hard to worship, to focus upon Almighty God. It takes work to do this. You can't worship well by mentally zoning in and out during a public worship service or by physically leaving the service when it's not an emergency and thinking you can come back and just pick up where you left off. It's impossible to do that. We can view a sporting event, a lecture, a movie in that way, but we can't worship well that way. And we can't worship by sitting and expecting worship leaders and pastors to make it all happen for us. In worship services, we are not spectators in the stands. We are players on the field. We are actively engaged. We are aware of what we are doing or we need to be. Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4.23 that God seeks out people who will worship him in the way that he desires to be worshipped. Now, you're probably making some New Year's resolutions. You're taking some vows about what the next year is going to look like. I think it would be good for each of us, for me, to think about what we need to do in order to worship this great God and give him the kind of worship he desires. And how can we work to help create an environment in this space that makes it easier for people to assemble around us and do the same thing? Let's think about these things and pray that God will give us the grace to perform the kind of worship he wants. He created us for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I need help, and I pray that you would help me with this. Father, I have, uh, at times, a grasshopper brain all over the place. Help me to see what Isaiah saw, saw. Help me to see not only your awesome 
uh, your awesome characteristics, your, your attributes that are absolutely holy, transcendent. Help me to see, Father, a cross. Help me to see Jesus' sacrifice, bleeding and dying, Father, that, that my sins in this area and all others will be cleansed. Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of those who may have come in who don't know Jesus. Help them to see that they're going to meet this God someday. They're going to meet him as righteous judge. They're going to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. Father, there's nobody that wants to stand there not clothed in Jesus' holiness. Father, draw them to faith. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.